traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. Barry Knapp of Ironsides Macroeconomics, welcome back to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you. Very excited. Last year at this time, and this has become a bit of a tradition here, a January tradition to have Barry, who, by the way, was our first ever guest way back in 2019, to come on and give us his views and about markets. And last year at this time, when everybody was bearish, you were a little bit more optimistic. And you got that one right. Credit to you. So we are now, of course, very curious here as we record on January 8th. And the market, which started the year optimistically, has now turned a little bit for the worse. So very curious about your views here on markets, on the economy, and your entire take on this whole thing. A year ago, you're you're correct. Uh, my bear or bullish outlook really began in October uh, at the point when I thought we had reached maximum Fed tightening expectations. Very similar. It was similar in many ways to November of 1994 when the Fed did their you know, uh, most aggressive hike of that cycle, the 75 basis point cycle. The market sold off for about two more weeks and then found its footing. And even as the Fed continued to tighten a bit, um, we were through the worst of it and the markets rallied. That analog, along with an improved liquidity environment, our expectation that we wouldn't have recession, were all at the core of why we had an optimistic outlook for at least the first half of last year. And um, we basically stuck with that view, even as we downgraded banks and realized that there was some differences from that 94 uh, analog, most notably the fact that the just magnitude of the yield curve inversion was the deepest inversion we'd had since the Volcker regime, which ultimately led to the demise of the savings loan industry, which at the time was 80% of mortgage credit creation, the total supply of, of mortgage credit into the market. And so that similarity got us much more cautious on banks. And so we were a little mixed in our view through the market, but still thought there was a good chance we could wind up the year at, at 4,800. When we got to September, and the Fed seemed to change the rules of the game somewhat. Um, we became a bit more cautious. The idea, our idea was that the Fed had, as opposed to just riding the disinflationary wave, now they, and, and we should have always detected this, but the Fed does worship at the idol of the Phillips curve, so to speak, right? And so this is kind of the, the dilemma we're in right now and the reason why we think the market is going to struggle through at least the first quarter of the year, maybe into the first half of the year. We laid this out in a somewhat simplistic or catchy way to think about it in our, our latest note, and we called it quadrilemma. And the idea was there's four critical fours that you have to think about in order to get through this difficult, what I would consider to be difficult period. And so the idea here is that 
ultimately to disinvert the yield curve and open up the bank credit channel, which we think is so critical to being able to refinance this huge pipeline of multifamily real estate that's being developed. We have over a million units under construction that once they get finished, they will need to be refinanced into multi-sector uh, loans. There's also $7 trillion of government debt that needs to be refinanced and another $2 trillion of new supply because that's the underlying trend for the deficit and a range of small business related debt that needs to be done. There's a lot of high yield and even investment grade credit that needs to be rolled this year. So we think the Fed does need to cut to 4%, which is the market expectation roughly, looking at the Fed funds curve. If they don't cut to 4%, it's unlikely that the 10-year Treasury can stay below 4%. Um, it's currently you know, a little bit above that. So in order, though, to get the Fed to cut to 4%, we do not think inflation is going to be enough. And we can come back and talk about that. We think that they'll likely need to see an unemployment rate above 4% and average hourly earnings, particularly the non-supervisory series, which is you know, production workers, has a much longer history, will have to go decidedly below 4%. So there's our quadrilemma, right? Four percent. Um, Fed needs to cut to four by the end of the year uh, in order to keep the 10-year note yield below four. And to get there, we need a over a four percent unemployment rate and a under four percent core average hourly earnings growth. It's hard to imagine getting that scenario to unfold without calling into question 11 to 12 percent earnings growth this year. So we yeah. did have an earnings recession um, for all that debate about whether we're going to have a recession or not. We did have a recession. In essence, we had a recession, three quarters of negative S&P 500 earnings growth, the um, corporate contribution to gross domestic income, which does a much better job capturing business cycles than gross domestic product does. That was negative for three quarters in a row. It lined up with uh, gross or S&P 500 earnings, as you'd expect. That ended at mid-year and turned positive. So most investors are expecting a robust recovery in earnings. Well, you know, in a softening uh, nominal income growth environment, in an environment where average hourly earnings growth decelerates, and I could explain why I think that's likely to happen, why the unemployment rate is likely to go over four, it's hard to imagine that we get this robust earnings growth. Mm. So, you know, you put those things together and then add to that the inflation outlook. And this is critical um, because the Fed had this really strange forecast that they put forward in September that inflation was going to reaccelerate in the fourth quarter. Hmm. That clearly didn't happen. But when you decompose inflation into what we can call Powellflation, right? This goes all the way back to his November of um, 20 to um, inflation forecast right at the Brookings Institute where he broke inflation into core goods, non-housing services got sort of categorized as the super core and then housing inflation. If you think about those three categories right now and six month annualized inflation is all the rage, right? Every mm -hmm. time Nick Timoros, the Fed whisperer at the Fed or the Wall Street Journal writes about this, he talks about six month annualized inflation. Well, right now, uh, housing inflation is running over five. It will continue to come down as we lap some very strong, you know, three quarter of 1% monthly increases for the next three months. So that'll put some downward pressure on core inflation through March. Core services though, are running at 4%. Now this number was never two. It was more like two and a half, two and three quarters for the 20 years prior to the pandemic. So it's not likely to go back. And you can see evidence of fiscal spending within inflation as well. The sole reason that inflation has come down is because core goods inflation is deflation again. It's falling at a 2.5% annualized rate. This is as deep as the decline that we got on an annualized basis in the early 2000s, shortly after China was admitted to the WTO. So we're getting a second wave of deflation coming out of China. Chinese import prices are falling at a 2.9% annualized rate. So we're getting the second wave deflationary 
shock through goods prices that seems highly unlikely to persist, you know, even through this year, let alone through the business cycle as we restructure global supply chains. And we have problems in, you know, now the Suez Canal. We've had all these labor supply shocks over time. And um, we're already seeing signs that global trade is, is accelerating. Asian exports are the leading edge of this. They've gone positive. So counting on goods price deflation to keep our inflation headed towards the Fed target to me seems like a fairly low probability outcome. So if you sort of put all that together and you think, okay, we've got you know a Fed that wants to see or expects to see a deterioration in the labor market in order to cut enough to disinvert the curve, can that happen with really robust earnings growth and inflation coming down towards target where, you know, because we're counting on goods prices to continue to fall at a two and a half percent rate, seems like a, a, a very low probability mm. outcome. As a consequence, it seems more likely to me that the first part of the year is more difficult that we give back a lot of the gains that we've had since late October through that bear steepening. We could talk more about the treasury market term premiums and where that market is likely to settle. I'm not all that optimistic about the back end of the treasury market. I do think if we can get through that point and have something of a growth scare, get the Fed to start aggressively cutting, I am optimistic and do have a fairly optimistic target for the end of the year for the S&P. 5,100 is what I penciled in in early December. Could be a little better than that with the earlier expected Fed you know, pivot and giving up on their last rate hike. But we, we need to have a rough start of the year, uh, in my estimation, to set us up for a better end of the year. Yeah. But to your point, how can the Fed cut rates as soon as March, which is kind of what's being priced in in the futures markets, if inflation is this persistent? Well, I, I think they could, you know, pat themselves on the back right now and say, hey, goods prices are coming down. We don't care where it comes from, because quite frankly, inflation and, and this is an important perspective, inflation below target or at target in the 2010s was entirely a function of zero goods inflation for nearly 20 years. Hmm. Housing inflation ran at three, non-housing services uh, ran at two and a half, two and three quarters. The stuff that was domestically determined based on Fed policy never ran at two. It ran closer to three. It was this exogenous shock that was why the Fed was missing target, which is why I was so critical about all that extraordinary easing they did in the 2010s that really just caused malinvestment, capital misallocation, money flowing into buybacks instead of capbacks, all that stuff, because they were trying to correct a problem that had nothing to do with them and there was nothing they could do about. So they could pat themselves on the back and say, oh yeah, it's fine. We don't care where it comes from. We can do it. The problem though is there. it's very clear from the minutes last week that there are still a great number of FOMC participants that worship the Phillips curve idol, right? And believe, and it was, you know, it was in the minutes as well, specifically, we can't get non-housing services uh, down to target without better labor market balance, right? Mm. So the way they would be able to cut in March, in my view, is if the unemployment rate goes above four. Now, mm -hmm. I know it It was at 3.9 two months ago and then dropped to 3.7. The first month it dropped to 3.7. Curiously, there was this very large increase in household survey employment and um, not as much of an increase in the supply of labor. The Fed's been saying, hey, we've got this big increase in participation. Immigration's picked up. Well, the last two months, that argument's kind of come unglued a little bit because participation has fallen and um, so we get this increase in household survey in November, and then we get a huge plunge in December. Last Friday's report was really curious. We had a 2 million drop in full-time employment in the latest number. So if you look at the conference board um, survey where they ask people, are jobs plentiful or jobs hard to get, the relationship between that survey and the household survey pre-pandemic 
was off the charts strong, like a 0.95 R squared. If you build a little model using that, you get a 4.2% unemployment rate. So ultimately, when you look through a whole range of indicators, the JOLT survey last uh, month showed hiring slowing back to 2015 levels, uh, quits rates back down towards lows, the work week is at the lowest level of the back half of last business cycle. All these things indicate the demand for labor has fallen a lot. And we're getting probably just some distortions in the data. Remember, we've had we had negative revisions 11 of 12 months. Yeah. There is a good chance that we're going to get a big upside surprise in the next couple of months to that unemployment rate and get to four. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the final point I'd make on wages, which would also, you know, facilitate the Fed starting to cut rates as soon as March, would be that turnover in the labor market has collapsed. So when you look at hiring plus separations as a percent of the labor force, really what happened to wages, at least half of the big spike we had in wages that peaked in early 2022 was attributable to the greatest amount of churn we've ever had in the labor force, the great reallocation. Workers used the pandemic as an opportunity to go get a new job within industries or even change industries. And that caused a one-time labor shock uh, wage sp spike. But what that actually does is increases pro uh, productivity as they get trained and they're settled into jobs they'd rather be in. That's now completely reversed. The so-called jobs finding rate hit its second lowest level in the history of seri the series going back to 1992 in the December report. Those things drive wages down. So mm. it's likely that in the first quarter of the year, we're going to see the unemployment rate go up and average hourly earnings go down. Mm. This will get the Fed spooked about the employment part of their mandate and start the cutting cycle. Mm. Um, so that's, to me, the hurdle we need to get over. However, if that happens, as I said, there's gonna be a real gut check on the strength of the earnings recovery. So yes. that's why you sort of can't get there from here without, you know, without some sort of a growth scare that causes uh, you know, an issue for equities. Yeah. Now, we'll get to equities in a minute, but the bond market, you would think, would probably react positively to the prospects of Fed rate cuts, as it did in November and December. It did, except that the, um, the, the, issue, the issue here still is we have not resolved the supply problem. And um, we had our second real warning sign that we have reached our fiscal limit. The first mm -hmm. one came from... January 4th of 2021, when the Republicans lost the Senate in the Georgia special uh, special elections, <laughs> excuse me, hmm. and um, maybe maybe we should think of it that way. Yeah, but, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> um, from that point on that January 4th through the signing of the American Recovery Plan and the $1.9 trillion stimulus, remember, expectations at that point were no additional stimulus, and we wound up with $1.9 trillion, the 30-year real rate or TIPS yield, which is the part of the curve least influenced by the Fed's balance sheet or the Fed's uh, policy rate, that moved up 60 basis points in a matter of weeks. So that was a shock that or warning sign that the, the Treasury was going to struggle to sell all this debt. Now, the Treasury then decided to drain their account at the Fed, cut issuance. You'll recall the big uh, hullabaloo about Stan Druckenmiller saying that Janet Yellen should have extended duration. She didn't, it wasn't a question of her extending duration or not in 2021. She just stopped issuing, right? Mm -hmm. There was $1.7 trillion in their checking account. And they just cut issue, issuance altogether. So that was our first warning sign. The second one came beginning in early August of last year when the Treasury announced they were going to sell an additional $500 billion more of coupon securities in the second half of the year than the market was expecting because the deficit was bigger than expected. So again, we had this vicious bear steepening. It moved a similar amount, 60 basis points through the month of August. We then got a weak payroll report and it looked like the Fed's September meeting would be fairly dovish. They would probably even eliminate the last rate hike from their forecast, but they didn't do that. Mm. They actually had a very hawkish forecast exacerbated the move. Now 10-year or 30-year real rates are up 120 basis points. 
the term premium models, you know, went from deeply negative to positive. And um, this only stopped when the Fed acknowledged, hey, we may have overdone it. They had what I called a uh, policy put at that point where they acknowledged, hey, we had a real tightening of financial conditions. The move of 10-year Treasury yields to 5% is doing our job for us. And then they confirmed they weren't going to hike anymore. That was the you know the pause. And then, of course, in December, they announced, hey, the next move's a cut, essentially announced. And that whole process caused all the term premium to move back negative. But it doesn't resolve the fact that they still have $2 trillion more of supply, $7 trillion to roll. And with the yield curve deeply inverted, their decision to issue primarily in the belly of the curve, so two years to seven years, that's the portion of the curve that the banking system plays a huge role mm. in financing. So mm. if you think about, I wrote back at the time, Treasury Secretary Yellen lost all her best customers, right? Mm. So the best customer for treasuries for the last 15 years has been the Fed. Yeah. <laughs> Second best customer is the banking system. Banking system bought 1.8 trillion of treasuries in 2020 and 2021 when, you know, the Fed was just flooding the system with liquidity, as was the Treasury by reducing issuance. Um, and then the third best buyer were um, Asian, Asian central banks in particular. And we could see Chinese holdings are coming down, Japanese holdings are coming down. And those are unlikely to reverse because global trade has slowed a lot and it's not going to pick back up, most likely. Um, so without with the curve deeply, deeply inverted, the banking system cannot buy seven-year treasuries or 10-year treasuries in any meaningful amounts hmm. because they fund it with deposits that cost over 5%. Now, it's not true for JP Morgan, but it's true for the baseline banks, the majority of banks in the system. So in order to get the banking system to help finance the federal government, the curve needs to disinvert. So back to our sort of trap. Hmm. And here's the problem with Treasury. So I, you know, at the end of the year, I would expect... Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. You know, at the end of the year, I would expect that the Fed will ultimately cut rates to 4%, but not without this deterioration in the labor market first. But I do not expect, I expect the curve to disinvert and 10-year treasuries to probably be more like four and a half percent at the end of the year. So mm, okay. counting, counting on, you know, another big rally like we had from late October through the end of the year. Remember, part of that was positioning because we'd had this vicious bear steepening move. And so it reversed. But once we start settling into a higher trend inflation environment, roughly 3% or so, um, probably higher nominal growth, could be higher productivity. I mean, that's the, the other thing we haven't talked about. And the reason why ultimately I'm reasonably positive on the markets, even through stock market in particular through the cycle is because I do think it will be a strong productivity cycle. It's another little bit yeah. of another story. I'm off on a tangent here. But I, I can't see how we continue to have negative term premiums in an environment where um, trend inflation runs higher. The Fed's not headed back towards zero, in my view, you know, anytime uh, in the foreseeable future. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense, given the stock of debt that we have and the financing needs, even with a deal to, to you know, level off spending like we had over the weekend we still are going to run 2 trillion deficits yeah. as far as the ice can see. And that's the SIBO forecast, right? Congressional budget office. So. Yeah. What about the QE um, and the Fed? The Fed is the biggest buyer of treasuries. And what, what about them uh, coming back and, and doing that along with rate cuts? Is there any prospects of that you think this year? Well, there was a really interesting development over the course of the weekend. Um, I had foreshadowed this, I suppose, in my note this week by picking up in the FOMC minutes that there was a real discussion about tapering QT. And yeah. I've been watching the liquidity, the plumbing really closely. I learned more than I ever wanted to know about this when I was managing director at Lehman and we learned about sieves back in, you know, 06 and all, but 
essentially, if you look at the liquidity in the system, um, there's two big sources of liquidity, bank reserves and the Fed's RRP program, which is where government money funds were parking their funds. When the debt ceiling deal got done in the summer, um, the Treasury began rebuilding their account at the Fed from zero to 750 billion by issuing Treasury bills. Now, when the Fed announced that they weren't, or you know, hinted that they weren't going to be hiking anymore, money funds extended duration by instead of just parking it in RRP, they bought you know three month bills and six month bills, which for their liquidity requirements, which is they're supposed to have you know seven day um, duration on their securities bills, even though they're three months or six months count towards that requirement. So they extended duration, that RRP balance, which was, you know, two and a half trillion is down to some $700 billion, it's plunging. Bank reserves have remained stubbornly high. Initially, the Fed looked at this bank reserve number and said, oh, there's plenty of liquidity in the system. I think they've come to the same realization that I've came to, which is that banks are hoarding reserves. Mm that the lowest comfortable level of reserves has gone up a lot. And um, I'll I'll give people a long, some long-term perspective on this, not to sound, um, I don't know, like a Cassandra about it or anything else. But in 1937, Mariner Eccles, the chairman of the Fed thought, we have all these excess reserves in the banking system so we can raise the reserve requirement. And that caused the recession within a depression because banks, wanted those reserves and so they cut loans well right now we have a very similar situation um, as i mentioned earlier they have all these multifamily real estate projects that they funded the construction piece of that need to be refinanced but also the capital requirements proposed by vice chair for supervision bar for both the big banks and every bank with over 100 billion in um in assets the change in the community reinvestment acts that uh, Governor Bowman has argued, is basically arguing are unconstitutional. It should take an act of Congress to do that. All these things mean that banks actually want to hold more reserves. And so they mentioned it in the minutes. And then Dallas Fed President Lori Logan, who, of course, used to be in charge of the SOMA portfolio at the New York Fed, gave a speech and said, we may have to Q, uh, taper QT because we're getting worried about liquidity and the you know, system starting to get tight. That's part of the reason why the market's rallying this morning is this idea, okay, QT could end sooner than we expect. The problem Mm. with all that is if you read Logan's speech, you don't just look at the headline, she went on to argue that this big loosening of financial conditions that's occurred since late October is working uh, against what they're trying to do and may cause a resurgence of inflation. So let's say we follow Logan's logic out and they taper QT, but don't cut rates. Well, now you're going to deepen that yield curve inversion further, make the situation worse for banks, Mm. make their ability to finance the government even more difficult and cause a big problem. Mm. There could be an offset. The Treasury could decide in their next quarterly refunding, instead of issuing it in in the belly and a greater amount of bills, than is recommended by their borrowing advisory committee, people like you know BlackRock and all the private sector people that advise the Treasury, they could extend duration. That could cause the curve to steepen, but that also means 10-year yields and 30-year yields go up. And yeah. so, you know, it's a, it's a it, listen, we just have this mountain of debt. Ultimately, this is a very important political issue as well. And um we take Fed independence, and I'm using quotation marks here, uh, for granted, right? Since Volcker, the Fed has been reasonably independent from the federal government. The Fed was not created by the founding fathers. Hamilton might have wanted that, but that's not what we got, right? Jackson eliminated the second bank. It was created by an act of Congress. And Bill Martin, the chairman of the Fed in the 60s, you know, actually from 1951 through 1970, famous quote is, the Fed is independent within, not of the government. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. the Fed is responsible for helping the government sell this debt. 
And on the path that we're on, the Fed is going to need to coordinate with the federal government. And one highly probable election political outcome right now would likely lead to less Fed independence. Mm. Right? The, How would the, that happen? The front runner in the polls, expectations for the Senate would likely lead us to a Fed chair that is less independent than the current Fed chair. Now, Powell's term isn't due to 2026. President could make his life miserable. He could decide to walk away. Then we get an appointment of someone who is um, a, a little bit more Arthur Burns-like. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that could create you know, a, a longer-term inflationary risk as well. So just something to think about with respect to the outlook for 2024. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and, of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can, where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. What about this debt ceiling stuff? And you talked about this last year also, how this was a kind of an overhang. How big of a concern is that? What What do you think the, was it just gonna, are they just gonna kick the can down the road again? A year ago, um, for the first six of the month, six months of the year, Counterintuitively, I was calling the debt ceiling a net positive, mm. whereas everybody else was talking about this. Oh, what if they shut down the government and this is the negative and uh, political uncertainty? Um, I would say, no, 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 this is a net positive. And the reason it was a net positive is because the Treasury couldn't issue. Yeah. Right? And so <laughs> yeah. the fact that they couldn't issue created more liquidity in the system and was a contributing factor to the favorable environment for equities in the first half of the year, even with the bank failures. Well, we're in the opposite situation now. The debt ceiling's been suspended until 2025, so they can issue as much as they need to. Uh -huh. So now, without a debt ceiling, it's actually a net negative um, because if they need the liquidity to fund the government, they can sell whatever they need to sell. So, yeah. yeah. Um, what What about the short end of the curve? I mean, this is something also that yeah. How does that? How do you leave? Where do you see all that? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm favorably disposed towards twos for sure. I've been very bullish twos uh, for quite some time because I've seen this underlying weakness in the labor market. And I should just make it an additional point about the labor market. I mentioned the 11 of 12 negative revisions. Remember how the labor market um, you know, gains are estimated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There's one giant model that estimates small businesses. It's the birth death model. And the birth death model uses data from the IRS to estimate how many new business, small businesses there are. But they the, the lag in the data they get for how many businesses just pack it in, deaths, 
is really, really delayed. And it looks like they're vastly overestimating small business employment, which is right. why we keep partially why we keep getting these negative revisions. And, um, you know, when you look a little more deeply into that data, you probably come to a similar conclusion to me that they're overestimating employment probably last year by 1.3 to 1.5 million jobs. So mm. within that context, um, yeah, we are in a in a weaker labor market spot, in which case mm -hmm. I do think they could very easily start in March. Mm -hmm. And in that environment, you really want to be in the two year part of the curve. But again, until the until twos are low enough that that twos tens curve disinverts and flips positive, um, it's really hard to envision that the demand for the back end of the treasury market is going to be all that robust. Mm. We had the household sector aggressively participate and hedge funds participate in it in the rally in the fourth quarter. But um, underlying demand is still uh, reasonably sketchy. Yeah, we're about 30 plus basis points, I think, from the re uninversion of the two tens. What is it? 4.35 for the two and 4.03 some something for the Correct. Two tens are 35 um, uh, inverted, but um, I would um, I would keep my eye. Ultimately, what really matters for the banking system is the three month bill, yeah. 10 year note, yeah. because that's something of a proxy for what banks do. Right. right. I mean, right. they pay the front end short term deposit rate. And they have to compete with the Fed's RRP and, you know, to get deposits again, maybe JP Morgan continue to pay you zero because mm. you're worried about they get a safety premium. Mm -hmm. But for the baseline banks, um, they need to pay a, a market deposit rate, so that's closer to the bill rate, and that's mm. inverted by 135 basis. Oh, it's points. still that much. Okay, so yeah. it's massive. And wow. I just want to make this point one more time, if I may, because I think it's crucial. There's only been four occasions in post-World War II history where we had curve inversions this deep. It's often said the yield curve forecasts recessions. Well, it can cause them also. So in 1973, we had a curve inversion by to the tune of about 120 basis points on the three-month bill, 10-year note. Um, we had it in late 79, late 80, and then this one. And the 7980 is really one episode. You know, Volcker eased after Carter's credit controls in early 1980 because he crashed the economy fell from 50 to 29 in three months. Then he had to reverse the whole thing. That's really one episode. And that one episode caused the, you know, as I said, savings and loan industry to collapse ultimately, although the government did everything they could to keep them alive for 10 years. Mm. Bailey building and loan, so on and so forth. Mm. But the 73-75 recession was very deep as well. We've never had uh, anything like that except those few occasions. And so, you know, we had a very steep or sharp flattening of the yield curve during the aggressive rate hike cycle in 90, from Feb 94 to 95. But that starting point was 100 plus 180 for twos tens, and it mm. went to zero. Mm. Well, a zero treasury curve, the banking system can live with for a time. Yeah, yeah. But 135 basis points inverted, that's a problem. And how long Dude, were these inversions? No alternative but to shrink. Yeah. How long were these previous inversions? Were they as long as this one? Because this one feels like it's gone on for a while. Uh, well, that 79-80 episode was was okay. fairly lengthy. Yeah. Um, 73, not, not as much. Um, mm -hmm. So wow. yeah, this was a, a pretty deep inversion. Now, the banking system was relatively de-risked in, in the sense that if you look at the loan to deposit ratio, there was, and, and I was reasonably optimistic, full disclosure about the banking system at this point a year ago because of that lack of credit risk. Mm. And I was underestimating the interest rate risk in the system, mm. right? I knew that they had accumulated all these treasuries and I knew it was a problem. But I thought, you know, if the Fed doesn't keep tightening, then it, the system, pro the problem doesn't get acute enough. There were some unique things that happened along the way, but we won't dig into those details too much. I already went deep into the bank plumbing stuff. Yeah. But um, 
Any, anyway, the fact that they are de-risk, meaning very low loan to deposit ratios, there's not a ton of credit risk in the banking system. Yeah, I've mentioned multifamily real estate, there's some commercial real estate, but you know they, they are not loaded to the gills with, with credit risk to that household sector or non-financial corporate sector. And by the way, both those sectors themselves are relatively de-risk. All of the risk, the excessive leverage risk, in the U.S. system resides in the federal government right now. Yeah, which right. makes it a very you know sort of unique cycle, not unlike what happened after World War II. Could we see further downgrades of U.S. debt? Sure. And I mean that could be a catalyst for selling in, in bond markets as it has. Sure, been not to, not to get too political about all this, <laughs> but you'd have to you'd have to assume at this point that the two leading candidates uh, to get the nomination and run for president, neither one is um, likely to be a catalyst for a structural path change for right. our our debt. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. Where does that leave uh, stocks, equities, just sectors? Speaking about sectors, you touched on the banking, the financial sector, maybe. Uh, sounds like that could be okay, if I'm extrapolating from what you're saying. But yeah, where else? Well, I... I um... I'm underweight banks and I'm underweight small caps right now because of the quadrilemma dynamic, this idea that we probably need to have uh, a growth scare, a deterioration in the labor market um, in order to get the Fed to start the process. Once the Fed starts the process, the tightening or easing process, then I could see my way clear to being long small caps and long banks. But until we get to that point, I would continue to be underweight both of those sectors. Um, I, I mentioned productivity a little bit earlier. Last cycle, we had one of the weakest cycles for capital investment that we've had since World War II. The only weaker one was the 58-60 cycle, which was very short. Um, capital investment has a very favorable outlook through this business cycle, although right now, your business confidence has come down a lot, capital spending plans have eased. So first half of the year will probably be flat, but it's likely we'll have a strong CapEx cycle. It's, it's also likely we'll have decent labor productivity if this current funk that we're in, which is payback from the great reallocation, starts to improve and labor market churn and dynamism turnover start picking back up. That was a trend through last cycle. We went from all-time lows of churn to all-time high. But most importantly, technology innovation adoption. So we spent a decade building out the cloud digitization. Those benefits should start to accrue to the users of that technology, not just the consumers of that technology. We saw you know, cloud investment growth slow in recent years at Amazon, Microsoft, Google, um, before it reaccelerated as the generative AI you know, boom mm -hmm. came along. It's It's, I'm going to be looking very closely for evidence of productivity accruing to industrial companies, healthcare companies, finance companies. We don't need a bank anchoring, a bank branch anchoring every strip mall in this country, right? Healthcare has been the biggest drag on productivity in this country for 40 years. Um, telemedicine, all sorts of, you know, just really using technology to deliver services could be a real boom through the cycle. So one of the ways I'm trying to watch that is I'm taking sales per uh, employee for the various S&P 500 sectors, I'm deflating it using CPI, comparing that to profit margins and looking for evidence of productivity picking up. The broader productivity story was from 2011 through 2017, and you have to be careful looking at productivity in the early stages of a business cycle. For example, we had a surge in the back half of last year as employment growth slowed and we got to the other side of this great reallocation. It's unclear whether that's a persistent trend or not. But um, we did see last cycle, very slow productivity from 2011 to 2017, less than 1% growth per year. And the post-World War II average is over two. But then in 18 and 19, it really accelerated. And it was coming primarily through the service sector. Manufacturing was in re recession as a consequence of the trade war. Um, but 
you could see it. And an easy to understand example is Starbucks, right? Starbucks comp store sales had stalled out in the 2010s until they invested a bunch of money in their app and got a third of their customers to skip the line, mm-hmm. come in and grab their coffee and solve their queuing problem, right? So the pandemic accelerated that process in my view, using technology and you know, simple areas like restaurants, right? Come in and order on iPads and save the waiters and waitresses time. Um, I think we'll see that process accelerate through this business cycle. A stronger productivity cycle means profit margins are not mean reverting. Um, we had a positive earnings shock. Earnings are nominal, they're not real. So this is where a bunch of strategists a year ago got it wrong thinking mm. earnings are going back to 180. And I said, no, 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 they're not. If we have an earnings recession, it'll be shallow because that's what happens in higher inflationary recessions, right? 69, 70, 73, 75, 80, 81, 82, earnings declines were pretty shallow. Um, so we had a five, 6% earnings recession. We're coming out of that. Productivity should be strong. <clears throat> I do think there's prospect a prospect for reasonably robust earnings growth through this business cycle. I think it's it could be, be very much like the 60s where uh, valuations were high, but earnings growth accelerated from roughly 9% outside of recessions in the 50s to more like 15 through the first eight years of the 60s. But bond returns were negative because inflation was trending higher Hmm. through that cycle. So that's sort of my, I think we can get to that point if we get that deterioration in the labor market, Fed reacts to it, disinverts the curve, then we could be in a fairly strong productivity environment that is you know, good for ban- or um, corporate earnings. Still, the bond market valuation is in the wrong spot. And I think, the th- you know, I wrote this in 19 and 2020 that the 39 year bond bull market was over hmm. and we are in a new cycle and um, yields are going to grind higher over time. They were in the wrong place because in part because of the Fed and Asian central banks engaged in mercantilist policies back in the 2000s. Mm. Um, So I'm not optimistic, really, that bond returns will be all that robust and negative term premium. To me, treasuries do not look attractive Mm. whatsoever um, from a longer strategic perspective. But the stock market could get into a 60s sweet spot where we have strong investment cycle, strong productivity, and in which case, you know, I've continued to like industrials, um, energy, materials. Those are the cyclical sectors I like right now. Um, you know, I, I think there might be a tactical spot to get underweight tech, but I'm market weight tech. I essentially consider being market weight tech in the U.S. already a big enough bet. It's, you know, tech and tech related. So com services and discretionary, which is kind of dominated by tech companies. If you are cap weighted, um, those are so big that being overweight those sectors is almost reckless, right? So yeah, yeah. sort of market weight those sectors, overweight industrials, materials, and energy, underweight banks, um, and uh, I'm overweight healthcare. Although I tried to get overweight that last year and it didn't work out, and uh, I still think that. We're in the early stages of healthcare going through something of a technology revolution that will mm. make the sector, you know, finally stop being such a big drag on productivity mm. in this country. Mm. Um, and then, the, you know, staples, utilities, those sectors, bond proxies, REITs, I want nothing to do with them. Fair enough. The, uh, the healthcare, though, has traditionally been more of a uh, defensive sector, though. It, it sort of borders on the on the mm. edge of that. It's it's become a little bit more cyclical. Yeah. A former colleague of mine um, at Barclays was really good about this. Did some great work. His name is Josh Josh Raskin. He's now an independent research provider like me. Um, yeah, but, but Josh talked a lot about the consumerization of healthcare mm. with the increase in these deductible plans. It's made the consumer much more sensitive to spending patterns and it's made the sector a, a bit more cyclical than it used to be when most of insurance was achieved through your company and the deductibles were small 
you weren't particularly sensitive to it, ex except that if you, you know, you got laid off, but then you got Medicare, um, Medicaid, excuse me. It's a little more cyclical than it used to be, mm -hmm. but you're right. I mean, I'm not really long healthcare because of cyclical business cycle reasons. My idea is just that, you know, the pandemic may have been a shock that causes um, healthcare providers to finally start integrating technology mm. into the delivery of healthcare mm. services. Yeah. So the that would be companies. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, they have their own things. You're still rent seekers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But health tech sounds like it could be, you might, that'll be positive right. then. Yeah. Very good. All right. That's a nice way to wrap it up. Barry Knapp, thank you for rejoining the podcast. In closing, maybe you can tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, about your research. I will put this all in the show notes, of course. Awesome. Um, so I, I started Ironsides Macroeconomics in uh, 2018 after 25 years at Bar Lehman Barclays, a couple of years at BlackRock on my sabbatical at the buy side, and then a 18-month stint at Guggenheim Securities. Um, I, I've tried to make the product a approachable, although it's, you know, I, I've spent my career talking to institutional investors, but I've tried to make it a little bit more approachable. There is uh, it, the product is housed on Substack, so you can go to ironsidesmacro.substack.com. I've created a um, subscription-based product for you know, in sophisticated individual investors, wealth advisors, money managers, so that you can subscribe to the product. I also have an institutional client base that I interact with you know, more frequently, um, and I have a... Um, uh, a relationship with macro risk advisors for clients that like to pay for research the old fashioned way, which is with trading commissions. And we create some additional products, some videos uh, with macro risk advisors, Dean Kernitz mm -hmm. firm. Dean was um, a colleague of mine in equity derivatives back at Lehman Brothers. And so there's a pretty good derivative tilt to what we do there as well for those that are interested in options and, yeah. <clears throat> and the like. So, um, yeah, that's it. But uh, I'd suggest everyone go to ironsidesmacro.substack.com. We produce we produce that fairly lengthy 2,500 plus word with eight to 10 charts weekly that comes out every Saturday morning. There's some uh, other notes we'll put out, payroll previews, for example. There's an audio summary of the weekly podcast to try and uh, make it even a little bit more approachable. And um, we'd love to have you consider if anyone wants a trial send me an email. I'm happy to do that. Cool. Yeah. And then you are on the social media too. Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, yeah. primarily. Yeah, yes. we got those. Mm -hmm. Cool. Awesome. I will put that all in the show notes. Thank you, Barry, for coming on. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back here again, probably in a couple of weeks. Speak then. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.